0: Let me introduce to you a good friend, William Lane Craig. Um, You may have heard him on the show a number of times, followed his ministry, and some of the debates he has around the world. But do put your hands together for Bill.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you for coming out on a Saturday to spend it, engaging your minds with these important questions. Jan and I are just delighted to be with you today. We always enjoy being back in the mother country, and uh, so it's a thrill for us to be here and uh, participating in this conference. And I've been invited to talk today about is there evidence for God? It's a truism that British society is post-Christian. The British social historian, Callum Brown, argues that the death of Christian Britain occurred during a remarkably brief period of time between about 1960 and 1975. Unbelief was symptomatic of the 1960s. On April 8, 1966, the American news weekly Time carried a lead story for which the cover was completely black except for three words emblazoned in bright red letters against the dark background. And the words read, is God dead? And the story described the so-called death of God movement then current in American theology. The philosophical precedents for faith's demise during the 1960s were laid in the previous decades. Back in the 1940s and 50s, it was widely believed among philosophers that talk, (laughs) about God is meaningless because it's not verifiable by the five senses. The book Language, Truth, and Logic by the British philosopher A.J. Ayer served as a sort of manifesto of this movement. The principal weapon used by Ayer in his crusade against anything metaphysical was the vaunted verification principle of meaning. According to that principle, a sentence, in order to be meaningful, must be capable in principle of being empirically verified. Since metaphysical statements were beyond the reach of empirical science, they could not be verified and were therefore dismissed as meaningless. Now Ayer was very explicit about the theological implications of this verificationism. Since God is a metaphysical object, the possibility of knowledge was, and I quote, ruled out by our treatment of metaphysics. Thus there can be no knowledge of God. The collapse of this verificationism during the second half of the 20th century was undoubtedly the most important philosophical event of the century. Philosophers discovered that the verification principle was not only unscientific, but in fact self-refuting. The statement, you should only believe what can be scientifically proven, cannot itself be scientifically proven. The downfall of verificationism prompted a resurgence of metaphysics along with other traditional problems of philosophy which had been suppressed by verificationism. And accompanying this resurgence came something new and altogether unanticipated, a renaissance of Christian philosophy. Ironically, this renaissance began at the same time that the theologians of the 1960s were writing God's obituary and Christian Britain was dying. The seminal event probably came in 1967 with the publication of Alvin Plantinga's book, God and Other Minds, which applied the tools of analytic philosophy to problems in the philosophy of religion with an unprecedented rigor and care and in his train has followed a host of Christian philosophers, writing in the professional journals, and participating in professional conferences, and publishing with the finest academic presses. And the face of Anglo-American philosophy has been transformed as a result. Atheism, though still the dominant position at the university, is today a philosophy in retreat. In a recent article, the University of Western Michigan philosopher Quentin Smith laments what he calls the de of academia that evolved in philosophy departments since the late 1960s. Complaining of naturalists' passivity In the face of the wave of intelligent and talented theists entering academia today, Smith concludes God is not dead in academia. He returned to life in the late 1960s and is now alive and well in his last academic stronghold philosophy departments. The renaissance of Christian philosophy has been accompanied by a resurgence of interest in natural theology, which is that branch of theology that seeks to defend the existence of God apart from the resources of divine authoritative revelation. All of the traditional arguments for God's existence, including the cosmological, teleological, moral, ontological arguments, not to mention creative new arguments, Find intelligent and articulate defenders on the contemporary intellectual scene. But you may ask, what about the new atheism uh, exemplified by people like Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, and A.C. Grayling, and so forth? Doesn't it herald a reversal of this trend? Not really. As is evident from their bibliographies, The new atheism is in fact a pop cultural movement, lacking in intellectual muscle and blissfully ignorant of the revolution that has taken place in Anglo-American philosophy. I am frankly astonished at the degree to which the lingering shadow of a long dead verificationism still hangs over much of popular culture. It comes to expression especially in the popular works of scientists like Stephen Hawking, Lawrence Krauss and Richard Dawkins who have no firsthand acquaintance with and nothing but disdain for philosophy. The new atheism is a vestige of the verificationism of a bygone generation and is remarkably out of touch with the contemporary intellectual scene. The revival of natural theology in our day is a great boon to the church. In talking to people, I find that the most commonly repeated objection to belief in God is, there's no evidence. For God's existence. Since most Christians are ill-equipped to defend their belief in God, this serves as an effective conversation stopper. But if you've mastered a few arguments for God's existence, then that objection won't stump you. If the unbeliever says there's no evidence for God's existence, you should look at him in astonishment and say, is that what you think? I can think of at least five good reasons to believe that God exists. And at that point, he's got to say, yeah, like what? And then you're off and running. (laughs) What was meant to be a conversation stopper has suddenly become a conversation starter. And what you'll discover, I predict, is that most unbelievers are almost completely uninformed concerning arguments for God's existence. They've just learned to repeat the slogan, there's no evidence for God's existence, and they have little to say beyond that. Take, for example, my debate with the new atheist thinker Louis Wolpert, which took place right here in Central Hall, and which is included on that DVD that you received this morning. One blogger characterized or summarized our debate in this way. Wolpert, there's no evidence for God's existence. Craig, there is evidence for God's existence and here it is one, two, three. Wolpert, there's no evidence for God's existence. Craig, there is evidence for God's existence and here it is, one, two, three. Wolpert, no evidence for God's existence. Sadly, this characterization is not far from the truth. The slogan there's no evidence for God's existence is just a cover for many people for lack of engagement and intellectual laziness. It's really just a way of saying I'm not convinced. So if the unbeliever responds to your argument by saying that's no evidence that God exists, Just say politely, well, I guess you don't find my arguments convincing. So you must think that some of my premises are false. Which premise do you reject and why? Now, this underscores the importance of having these arguments memorized. This will help you to stay on track. In response to your question, which premise do you reject and why The unbeliever is apt to say something like, I think religion is all in your head or religion has done more to harm society than anything else. Don't get distracted. Say, I understand that's how you feel, but you said there's no evidence for God's existence. So I want to know which premise in my argument do you reject and why? Try to get him to engage eventually you may get to the point where you can say to him, you know, I don't think you really reject God's existence because of lack of evidence. I sense a deeper emotional rejection of God going here. What's the real reason that you reject God? And at that point, you've moved beyond apologetics into personal counseling. My point is that having a few arguments in hand will completely invalidate the atheist's main reason for unbelief that there's no evidence for God's existence. The arguments I defend are battle-tested through years of speaking and debating on university campuses across Europe and North America. And I simply invite you to watch any of the many YouTube videos of these debates and dialogues with people like Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens, Sam Harris, Daniel Dennett, Lawrence Krauss, A.C. Grayling, Peter Atkins, Victor Stenger, and others, and see if the arguments don't hold up. I think that they do. Now, in this morning's talk, I don't have time to defend at length various arguments for God's existence. My aim, rather, this morning is simply to whet your appetite so that you'll avail yourself of the abundant resources on natural theology that are available today. So let me briefly review seven arguments which I presented in my debate with the Duke University philosopher Alex Rosenberg. Number one, the contingency argument. This argument is defended by philosophers today such as Alexander Proust, Timothy O'Connor, Stephen Davis, Robert Koons, and Richard Swinburne, among many others. A simple formulation of this argument is, one, everything that exists has an explanation of its existence, either in the necessity of its own nature or in an external cause. Two, if the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is God. Three, the universe exists from which it follows logically, four, therefore the universe has an explanation of its existence, and five, therefore the explanation of the universe's existence is God. I think that the key premise in this argument is premise one. I like to defend it by relating an illustration from the philosopher Richard Taylor. Taylor says, imagine you were walking through the forest and came upon a ball lying on the forest floor. You would naturally wonder how it came to be there. If your hiking buddy said to you, forget about it, it just exists inexplicably, you would think that he either was joking or that he just wanted you to keep moving. But nobody would take seriously the suggestion that the ball literally exists without any explanation. Now, notice that merely increasing the size of the ball, even until it becomes coextensive with the universe, does nothing to provide or remove the need for an explanation of its existence. So what is the explanation of the existence of the universe whereby the universe, I mean all of space-time reality. The explanation of the universe can only be found in a transcendent reality beyond the universe, beyond space and time, which is metaphysically necessary in its existence. But is this being personal? During a class discussion in one of my philosophy classes at Talbot, A student stunned me by offering a simple and powerful argument for that conclusion. Namely, there seems to be only one way to get a contingent entity like the universe from a necessarily existing cause. And that is if the cause is a personal agent endowed with freedom of the will who can freely choose to create a contingent reality. Now, I know that went by too quick, but I'm just trying to whet your appetite to look further into this. If successful, this argument shows that the best explanation of the existence of the contingent universe is a transcendent metaphysically necessary personal being, which is what everybody means by God. Number two, The Kalam Cosmological Argument. This argument is defended by such philosophers as Stuart Hackett, David Odeberg, Robert Koons, Alexander Proust, Mark Nowacki, and others. We can summarize this argument as follows. One, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Two, the universe began to exist. Three, therefore, the universe has a cause. The amount of garbage on the internet written about this argument is truly staggering. So before engaging people with the, about this argument, I'd really encourage you to look at my video, objections so bad I couldn't have made them up. The world's 10 worst objections to the Kalam cosmological argument. And yes, Richard Dawkins' objection is among them. The key premise in this argument is obviously the second, since the first premise is virtually undeniable for any sincere seeker after truth. The defense of the second premise includes both philosophical arguments against the possibility of an infinite past, as well as scientific confirmations drawn from contemporary cosmology. Now the philosophical arguments about infinity are really mind expanding and will keep you awake at night. I remember well during my doctoral studies at the University of Birmingham, lying awake in bed at night thinking about Zeno's paradoxes and the infinitude of the past. Anyone who thinks that Christians are small-minded simply reveals that he hasn't even begun to engage with these arguments. As for the scientific evidence, well, we formed a nice uh, video synopsis of this argument for layman, which I now invite you to watch with me.
2: Does God exist? Or is the material universe all that is, or ever was, or ever will be? One approach to answering this question is the cosmological argument. It goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Is the first premise true? Let's consider. Believing that something can pop into existence without a cause is more of a stretch than believing in magic. At least with magic, you've got a hat and a magician. And if something can come into being from nothing, then why don't we see this happening all the time? No, everyday experience and scientific evidence confirm our first premise. If something begins to exist, it must have a cause. But what about our second premise? Did the universe begin? Or has it always existed? Atheists have typically said that the universe has been here forever. The universe is just there, and that's all. First, let's consider the second law of thermodynamics. It tells us the universe is slowly running out of usable energy. And that's the point. If the universe had been here forever, it would have run out of usable energy by now. The second law points us to a universe that has a definite beginning. This is further confirmed by a series of remarkable scientific discoveries. In 1915, Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. This allowed us, for the first time, to talk meaningfully about the past history of the universe. Next, Alexander Friedman and George Lemaitre, each working with Einstein's equations, predicted that the universe is expanding. Then, in 1929, Edwin Hubble measured the red shift in light from distant galaxies. This empirical evidence confirmed not only that the universe is expanding, but that it sprang into being from a single point in the finite past. It was a monumental discovery, almost beyond comprehension. However, not everyone is fond of a finite universe. So it wasn't long before alternative models popped into existence. But one by one, these models failed to stand the test of time. More recently, three leading cosmologists, Arvind Bord, Alan Guth and Alexander Vilenkin, proved that any universe which has on average been expanding throughout its history cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. This even applies to the multiverse, if there is such a thing. This means that scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Any adequate model must have a beginning, just like the standard model. It's quite plausible then that both premises of the argument are true. This means that the conclusion is also true. The universe has a cause. And since the universe can't cause itself, its cause must be beyond the space-time universe. It must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused and unimaginably powerful. Much like God. The cosmological argument shows that in fact it is quite reasonable to believe that God does exist.
1: I've debated the scientific evidence for the beginning of the universe with professional cosmologists. And ironically, their objections mainly turn out to be philosophical, not scientific. For the most recent and substantive of these debates, see my debate with Sean Carroll, who is a determined anti-theistic cosmologist. This debate is so dense that I'd encourage you to read the transcript of the debate, which is posted at reasonablefaith.org, rather than simply watch the video. I've also written three questions of the week on the debate, which you can find on our website, numbers 368, 369, and 370, number 368, 369, and 370. If successful, the Kalam cosmological argument gives us an immaterial transcendent being beyond the universe. But is that being personal? Well, think about it. There are only two types of things that could possibly fit the description of an immaterial transcendent being. Either an abstract object like a number or else an unembodied mind or consciousness but abstract objects don't stand in causal relations. The number seven, for example, has no effect upon anything. Therefore, it follows logically that the cause of the universe is plausibly an unembodied mind. Notice that this argument does not presuppose that immaterial minds exist. Rather, it is an argument for the existence of an immaterial transcendent mind. The argument gives us not merely a transcendent cause of the universe, but its personal creator. Number three, the argument from the applicability of mathematics, this is for me a new argument which I've begun to defend only as a result of my recent work on God and mathematical objects. What struck me in reading current philosophy of mathematics is that neither realists nor anti-realists about mathematical objects like numbers and sets have by their own admission any explanation whatsoever of the applicability of mathematics to the physical world. This is the old puzzle about what physicist Eugene Wigner called the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. How is it that a mathematical theorist like Peter Higgs can sit down at his desk and by poring over mathematical equations predict the existence of a fundamental particle which 30 years later, after investing millions of pounds and thousands of man-hours, experimentalists are finally able to discover. Mathematics is the language of nature. But how is this to be explained? If mathematical objects are abstract entities uh, existing beyond time and space, causally unconnected to the universe, then the applicability of mathematics to the physical world is in the words of the philosopher of mathematics, Mary Lang, a happy coincidence. On the other hand if mathematical objects are just useful fictions, then how is it that nature is written in the language of these fictions? The naturalist has no explanation for the uncanny applicability of mathematics to the physical world. By contrast, the theist has a ready explanation. When God created the physical universe, he designed it on the mathematical structure which he had in mind. We can summarize this argument as follows. One, if God did not exist, then the applicability of mathematics would be just a happy coincidence. Two, the applicability of mathematics is not just a happy coincidence. Three, therefore, God exists. This argument deserves further exploration. I first floated it in my debate with Alex Rosenberg, and in his final response to our debate, all he says in response to this argument is that the problem of the applicability of mathematics pales in comparison to the problems of the nature of mathematical objects and how we come by mathematical knowledge. Well now obviously it does nothing to resolve a problem to point out that there are even worse problems. Number four, the teleological argument. The old design argument remains as robust today as ever being defended in various forms, by Robin Collins, John Leslie, Paul Davies, William Dembski, Michael Denton, and others. Although advocates of the intelligent divi- design movement have continued the tradition of focusing on examples of design in biological systems, the cutting edge of the contemporary discussion concerns the more recently discovered remarkable fine tuning of the universe for life. The argument can be formulated deductively as follows. One, the fine-tuning of the universe is due to either physical necessity, chance, or design. Two, it is not due to physical necessity or chance from which it follows. Three, therefore, it is due to design. Now, it's important to understand that by fine-tuning, one does not mean design. To say that the universe is fine-tuned for life simply means that in order for life to exist anywhere in the cosmos, the fundamental constants and quantities of the universe must fall into an extraordinarily narrow life-permitting range. Although some determined naturalistic scientists like Victor Stenger and Sean Carroll have tried To deny the fact of fine-tuning, this is really a counsel of desperation. Most physicists recognize that the universe is fine-tuned for life in the neutral sense described. Now, Premise one simply lists the live options for explaining fine-tuning found in the contemporary literature. So the key premise here is two. Physical necessity does not have many defenders today. So, the real question is whether the fine-tuning could be due to chance. The problem with the chance explanation is that the odds of a life-permitting universe governed by our laws of nature are just so infinitesimal that they cannot be reasonably faced. And therefore, the proponents of chance have been forced to postulate the existence of a world ensemble or multiverse of other universes, preferably infinite in number and randomly ordered so that life-permitting universes would appear by chance somewhere in the ensemble. Now it's worth pausing a moment to reflect on what's happening here. In order to avoid the design hypothesis, naturalistic scientists are adopting a metaphysical hypothesis concerning a very specific type of world ensemble for which there is no independent evidence. Not only is this hypothesis, in the words of Richard Dawkins, an unparsimonious extravagance, but as Roger Penrose of Oxford University explains, it faces what seems to be an insuperable obstacle. By far, Most of the observable universes in a world ensemble would be worlds in which a single brain fluctuates into existence out of the quantum vacuum and observes its otherwise empty world. Thus, if our world were just a random member of a world ensemble, we ought to be having observations like that, since we don't, that strongly disconfirms the world ensemble hypothesis. This argument took center stage in my debate with Sean Carroll and constitutes a huge problem for multiverse explanations of fine tuning. So chance is also arguably not a good explanation. Thus, the fine tuning of the universe constitutes evidence for a cosmic designer. Number five, the argument from intentional states of consciousness. Philosophers are puzzled by states of intentionality. Intentionality is the property of being about something or of something. It signifies the object directedness of our thoughts. For example, I can think about my summer vacation or I can think of my wife. So we may argue, one, if God did not exist, intentional states of consciousness would not exist. Two, but intentional states of consciousness do exist from which it follows three, therefore God exists. This is also a new argument for me, which I presented in my debate with Rosenberg. Ironically, what persuaded me of its soundness was Rosenberg himself. I had previously read Alvin Plantinga's critique of materialism in which he argues for mind-body dualism because no physical object exhibits intentionality. A chair or a stone or a glob of tissue like the brain is not about or of something else, only mental states Or states of consciousness are about other things. Rosenberg as a materialist recognizes this fact and so argues that on atheism there really are no intentional states. Rosenberg helped me to see that on an atheistic view there plausibly are no minds and hence no intentional states of consciousness. Incredibly, what Rosenberg concludes from this is not that atheism or materialism is false, but rather that we never really think about anything. But this is incredible. Obviously, I am thinking about Rosenberg's argument. Rosenberg attempts to answer this objection by saying that our intentional states are illusory. We only have the illusion of thinking about other things, but this response is logically incoherent, for an illusion is an intentional state. We have an illusion of pink elephants or of water in the desert or some such thing. To say that we have an illusion of intentionality is to admit that we do have intentional states. This seems to me to be the reductio ad absurdum of materialism and hence of naturalism. By contrast, because on theism God is a mind, it's hardly surprising that there should be finite minds as well. Thus intentional states fit comfortably into a theistic worldview. My philosophical colleagues, J.P. Moreland and Angus Minouge, who specialize in the philosophy of mind, are doing good work on this sort of argument. Number six, the moral argument. Robert Adams, William Alston, Mark Linville, Paul Copan, John Hare, Stephen Evans, David Baggett, and others have defended divine command theories of ethics which are supportive of a number of moral arguments for God's existence. Here's a simple moral argument. One, objective moral values and duties exist. Two, but if God did not exist, objective moral values and duties would not exist. Three, therefore, God exists. Now it will probably come as a surprise To learn that premise one is widely accepted among philosophers today. For any argument against objective morals will tend to be based on premises which are less evident than the existence of moral values themselves as apprehended in our moral experience, and therefore moral skepticism could never be justified. Many prominent atheists, however, such as Nietzsche Russell, and Sartre, agree with premise two. Theirs is a very plausible position for an atheist to take. For in the absence of God, it is very difficult to name any non-arbitrary and adequate foundation for moral values, and especially for moral duties. By contrast, on theism, moral values are grounded in God who is the paradigm of moral goodness, just as the sound of a live orchestra is a paradigm for a high fidelity recording, and God's commands to us constitute our moral duties, and so we have good moral grounds for belief in God. Finally, number seven, the ontological argument. St. Anselm's famous argument has been reformulated and defended by Alvin Plantinga, Robert Maydoll, Brian Leftow, and others. God, Anselm observes, is by definition the greatest conceivable being, or a maximally great being. So what would such a being be like? Well, he would be all-powerful, all-loving, all-knowing, and all-good, and he would exist in every logically possible world. But then, we can argue as follows. One, it's possible that a maximally great being a.k.a. God exists. Two, if it's possible that a maximally great being exists, then a maximally great being exists in some possible world. Three, if a maximally great being exists in some possible world, then it exists in every possible world. Four, if a maximally great being exists in every possible world, then it exists in the actual world. Five, therefore a maximally great being exists in the actual world. Six, therefore a maximally great being exists. Seven, therefore God exists. Now, it might come as a surprise to learn that steps two to seven of this argument are relatively uncontroversial among philosophers. Most philosophers would agree that if God's existence is even possible then he must exist. So the whole question is is God's existence possible? Well what do you think? The atheist has to maintain that it's impossible for God to exist. He has to say that the concept of God is logically incoherent, like the concept of a married bachelor or a round square. But the problem is that the concept of God just doesn't appear to be incoherent in that way. The idea of a being which is all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good in every possible world seems perfectly coherent. So you can just leave it with your atheist friend. Simply say to him, do you think, as I do, that God's existence is possible? If so, then it follows logically that he does exist. Now I'd strongly encourage you to master some of these arguments so that you can be ready to present them upon demand to an unbeliever who asks the reason for the hope that is in you. Sometimes well-meaning Christians say, you can't argue someone into the kingdom of God. But when you present arguments for God's existence, you're not working against or apart from the Holy Spirit The Holy Spirit uses means to draw people to himself, and these theistic arguments can be one such means. Even if people do not come to believe on the basis of the arguments, what the arguments can do is give people the intellectual permission to believe when their hearts are moved. The result changed lives. Every week we receive emails from people who have come to faith or come back to faith through reading an apologetics book or watching a video. I'll close this morning with a letter which I received from a youth minister. He wrote as follows. I am a youth pastor at a large evangelical church. A few years ago, one of the elder's sons who was in high school at the time, approached me and told me that he had become an atheist over the summer because science and philosophy had proven that God doesn't exist. He challenged me with some quotes from Hawking, Dawkins, Hitchens, etc., and I had no responses to them. I'll never forget the look on his face when I had no reply. He started crying, and with tears running down his face, he turned around and walked out of the doors of the church, and he has never come back. That sparked something in me. I realized that there was a new language that was needed to be spoken to the youth culture of today, a language that I was not fluent in. Looking back, I feel like I had no right to call myself a youth pastor at that time. But things have changed since then. Three years ago, a fellow pastor gave me your book, Reasonable Faith. It was hard to get through, but I managed to plow my way through most of it. Shortly after that, it seemed like atheists and agnostics were finding their way into my life. I started having debates on many issues with all of these different individuals, especially via Facebook. Issues that ranged from meaning, value, and purpose in life, morality, the existence of the universe, and so much more. I'm currently taking a big group of high school boys through On Guard, and they absolutely love it. I even taught the Kalam cosmological argument to my youth group of high school and middle school students. They understand it and they are hungry for more. It is so awesome to watch their faces when they come to an understanding that the cause of the universe is personal and therefore they can have a personal relationship with the cause of the universe. I have even used the Kalam argument to lead an atheistic college student to the truth of the gospel about a month ago. Now this former skeptic is studying on guard with me too. He wants to go to seminary and devote his life to the truth. I have seen the youth group grow with many skeptical teens. These students want to be respected with logical and thoughtful answers to their deep questions. I am seeing kids come to Christ on a regular basis. I have also seen many of the Christian students grow stronger in their faith and bolder in their evangelism because they are not afraid of having their faith questioned. Praise God for the victory in this young minister's life. I hope that this will be a challenge to all of us. We are living at a time of tremendous cultural opportunity for a revival of Christian faith in our day. If only we will avail ourselves of it. May we be diligent in applying ourselves to the discipleship of the mind as followers of Christ, and so fail neither God nor our fellow man.
0: So much, Bill. Um, we've got about ten minutes for Q and A. Uh, we have got some people up in the balcony, but most of us are on the ground floor. We have got a microphone up there, but I think what we'll do is maybe Bill take two, two or three questions for every one question from upstairs, if that's okay. So, uh,
1: would you like to call on the questioners?
0: Well, I'd be happy to do Thank that if, if that would work for you, Bill. So, you, um, uh, do you want to stand out here? Yes, so I'm my up, okay. So, right, well, won't that's be problem, great. Well, let's do that. Just a reminder. Um, Bill's not going to be staying here immediately after this seminar for your questions. He'll happily greet you, though, down in the exhibition hall below us, where he's going to be signing copies of On Guard, which we've already mentioned in the seminar. Okay, do we have some questions? It would be great to to have some of your questions. We'll start on the bottom here. Uh, We've got our team with the roving mic. If you want to come down, we'll start in this central aisle here. And there's a a gentleman in a red T-shirt just here with an opening question you want to pass the, the mic across to him?
3: Uh, thank you very much, Bill. Um, the Kalam argument seems to
1: depend to some extent on the existence of an agent or an unembodied mind. Um, well, it doesn't depend on it. It leads to it. As well, I said, it doesn't okay. presuppose it. It's an argument for that. Go ahead. Sure, so it, pre- pre- it leads to it, except that. But um, some people I've spoken to believe there is no such thing
3: as a mind. let alone an unembodied mind. So do you think we need to use
1: an argument like the one from intentionality to complement the kalam, or are there other ways that we could respond? We don't need to, but obviously the argument from intentionality would be a very powerful auxiliary argument, wouldn't it? Because if there are finite minds, that makes all the more intelligible the existence of a cosmic mind. But it's not necessary, as I say, This argument leads to or shows the existence of a cosmic mind. And all you need to do to defend that is to answer any objections against it that the unbeliever or materialist might bring. But then you see the burden of proof is on him, not on you. You have given an argument for an unembodied cosmic mind. If he's got an objection, he's got to bear the burden of proof to show that that's somehow impossible or incoherent. Pass the microphone back. Got a couple
0: more over here, so maybe we'll just move a couple of rows back to the to the lady um, uh, who's just okay. We'll, we'll take this gentleman first, and then perhaps the lady behind.
3: Well, thank you very much for the opportunity. Now, the third argument, the applicability of mathematics, is something new to me. Isn't in the essence, mathematics is nothing but logic.
1: Is it mathematics essentially logical? Essentially essentially? logic. Um, The the view that mathematics is simply an extension of logic was called logicism, and it was popular back around the time that Russell and Whitehead wrote their Principia Mathematica, but it's largely rejected today. You, you, You cannot derive mathematics simply from logic, but certainly M- the truths, many of the truths of mathematics would be logically necessary, but it's more than just an extension of logic.
0: Thank you. Great. If you could just pass the microphone once you've asked your question back to the... Just
1: student, back, that would back, be great. backwards. Um, yes. Yeah. to the lady there, great.
3: Thank you, Dr. Craig, for a um, really good talk. Can you explain to us why the sentence which A.J. Eyre proposed proposed for verificationism stood up for so long. Philosophers are intelligent people. (laughs) (laughs) It it should have crumbled as soon as it had been proposed.
1: Yes, well, I don't mean to imply that it wasn't criticized. It was, and what happened was it went through revision after revision trying to save it. For example, it morphed into the so-called falsification principle. Uh, And it was just finally given up on when it it was realized none of these was really salvageable. So it wasn't as though philosophers were so dull-witted that they failed to see there were problems. It was more an attempt, because of the deep commitment to science and its authority, that that somehow this had to work and had to be made to work. But it, it, it was finally just given up on. Shall we take a question
0: from at the top, anyone? I think we see a hand in the center there uh, Mm -hmm. as the microphone's going. Uh, Okay.
1: While the microphone is getting to him, the thing that just astonishes me is that it seems like so many scientists are unaware of this fact, probably because they don't read philosophy. And so especially among older scientists who were educated during that era, this kind of verificationism still persists and it, it's very widespread in pop culture. It seems like it takes a generation or two for ideas to seep down from the ivory tower into popular culture. And that's one reason I'm optimistic for pop culture is because pretty soon this revolution I described is going to begin to work its way into popular culture. And I think a conference like this is one of the fruits and evidences of that happening. These kind of conferences weren't held 20 years ago. Yes. Um, Thanks for your talk. Uh, Regarding
0: argument number five, the intentional states of consciousness, uh, I'm sure some atheists would probably reject premise one. And they would probably say that um, there are minds or hold some type of property dualism. So is this more of an argument against reductive materialism than an argument
2: for atheism? No, I
1: think what you would have to do there, then, is show that. Property dualism, that is to say that physical objects like brains have mental properties, is ultimately not going to work, that this will collapse into some kind of reductive materialism, such as Rosenberg argues. And So there's certainly more work to be done here, I've just sketched the tip of the iceberg, but people like Angus Minouge, J.P. Moreland, whom I mentioned, have extensive critiques of non-eliminative materialism and trying to show why that ultimately um, is an untenable halfway house between some sort of substance dualism where there are minds that really exist and reductive materialism which would deny that uh, minds are, are real things. We'll provide a translation afterwards.
0: <laughs> no, it's great. We've got some really fantastic questions coming through. Let's go over to this side of the room, a number of hands there. If you want to go to the, perhaps to the back, the gentleman who's got his hand high up in the air there, uh, pass it along the row, and we'll get a question from Bill. Uh, thank you. Uh, I just wanted to ask, uh, even the people who believe in God, they argue about the nature of God, uh, yes. like deism and pantheism.
1: So how do we know... Like, there's a range of different notions on the spectrum. So how, how do we know which one is more coherent? Yes, excellent question. These arguments, if sound, enable you to derive or deduce a number of striking properties of this cause of the universe which will rule out most of the world's religions and narrow them down to the world's great monotheisms. Uh, For example, pantheism is ruled out by the demonstration that there is a transcendent being which is the cause of the universe uh, as well as a source of moral value that is objective. So these arguments will give us a being which is a timeless, spaceless, immaterial, uncaused, eternal, personal, enormously powerful creator of the universe who is the paradigm and locus of absolute goodness. That is a very rich theological concept of God which is incompatible with all but the great monotheisms. So this will narrow it down to deism, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam basically. And then among those one will need to look at further evidences concerning Jesus of Nazareth and, and his claims and so forth to narrow it down further. But already the field is winnowed as a result of the cumulative force of these arguments. Great stuff. Should we come down the aisle and
0: there's a lady in pink dress there who I think we'll go to next from the stewards. Thank you.
3: Um, Well, just let me introduce myself. Um, After I finished raising my six children, I decided to do a BA in Theology and World Religions. And I'm finishing the third year. And there is something that um, my professors don't answer. (laughs) Um, You mentioned the Boltzmann brains. Yes. And he just asked, and somebody else just asked about how do we know? And uh, I just happened to finishing an essay on somebody, a, a theologian that was mentioned earlier by Oz Guinness, who's Alistair McGrath, and he has a proposal for natural theology too. So my question, which I think doesn't hold because it fails on epistemological grounds. And um, so my question is, uh, what is the, currently the, rule, the, the role of epistemology in natural theology? It's, um, let me just finish, uh, narrow it down to what I'm trying to say, sorry, it's too vague. Um, for example, uh, um, cognitive science, from my research, it, it it comes down to Kant, to idealism. And idealism, just like any idealism, like, such as Buddhism, always has an explanatory gap. There's, um, you need to use what you know to explain what you know. Okay. There's an explanatory gap in every idealism. So my question is, how do, what is the current role of epistemology yeah. in natural theology?
1: Well, I'm not an epistemologist, which is the theory of knowledge. And the arguments, if I frame them, I think, are not system dependent upon any particular theory of knowledge. I have tried to make them as broad as possible so that they would be useful to people regardless of their epistemology. I think what they do presuppose is that there are objective truths about God. They're anti-postmodern in the sense that they do presuppose the canons of logic, rationality, and objective truth. But I think that's easy to defend, uh, and so that's not, I think, a controversial presupposition of the arguments. But beyond that, I I think they're quite neutral epistemologically.
0: We're going to draw the questions to a close. Now, there's going to be lots more opportunity today uh, for questions. For instance, Bill's back here in the Great Hall, along with Craig Hazen and Jeff Zweirink, for the final seminar of the day. And there's going to be lots of time for questions then. And then there's another Q&A session to close out the conference. So lots more opportunities to ask questions of Bill. Thank you very much, Uh, and it's been a fabulous talk from Bill. Do give him a round of applause.